Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hi, hello there and welcome to the Eurogamer podcast. We're doing something a little bit different this week. It's something very exciting. Uh, I'm joined by Robert Bertie Purchase. Hello. Who recently did an interview with an author of a book. I know, right? The book is a... Uh, I'll let you, let you describe it. Okay, so the book is called The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle and the author is Stuart Turton. It turns out reading the book feels very much like jumping into a video game, say, like Bioshock, where you're suddenly in the body of someone, you're looking at your hands, you're running around this environment trying to work out who you are, what's the situation, what's going on. It's told in the first person, it's very urgent, it's enormously like playing a video game. Which is interesting because Stuart Turton turns out to be very into video games. In fact, um, very nicely he reads Eurogamer. So yeah, that was a nice surprise. That was quite cool. Yeah, he's a genuine reader. It's not just lip service. He's really into video games. He is someone. Video games are a staple part of his life. He has to play video games every day. He's just really into them, as you know, everyone else who reads the site is. So I thought I'd talk to him to see how his video game playing past had influenced the book. And I was amazed to discover he didn't realise it had. Mm. We were at a really fascinating point in time, I think, because we have a lot of people now who are in their mid-30s, 40s, who grew up playing video games. And now their work, their creative work, and, and people younger as well, but... Their creative work is now coming to the fore, you know, their books, their plays, those things. And as I discovered talking to Stuart, when he's searching for things creatively in his mind, he unknowingly is pulling from his video game past to fill that creative jug or whatever it is he needs to fill. And therefore, we're getting things which feel familiar to video games. So I thought that was fascinating. Also, the book is just really good. It also just very recently won the, uh, it was like the first novel award for the Costa Book Awards. Which is amazing. Yeah, yeah. very impressive. Because this is Stuart Turton's first book. The pace is phenomenal. It's straight in. Sometimes I take a while to warm to a book and sink into it. But this one, it was just, it grabbed me by the jaffers to begin with and didn't let go. Um, so I, I suggest you read it. And when in the podcast, the first half, we I deliberately try not to go into Spoilerville. But having listened back through it to transcribe it for the piece that I'm writing, I realised that we are talking... Again, there's no huge spoilers, but we are talking about the story. We are talking about things that happen. So if you like things completely, just everything to be a surprise, just go and read it. Otherwise, listen. do listen to the first half of the podcast. We do telegraph when we get into spoiler territory yeah it's, start- a, it's about like 50 55 minutes in which is like a good chunk of the interview but even if you if you have a vague interest and just want to like if you're interested in how authors write books and this is obviously a very structurally unique book then he's got some really like interesting insights and 
yeah, the, the interview is great. Stu is really lovely. He's a very smart guy. Um, and yeah, we hope you really enjoy it. And once you're done, then do by all means check out Bertie's piece. Yeah. Um, which is so basically this is the interview he used to then write the piece about. We just thought like let's park a microphone in front of you two guys. <laughs> and if you wanted to hear kind of the raw interview, um, then yeah, this is it's the place to do it. So there's probably lots of stuff that doesn't quite make it into the piece that is still really interesting and insightful. Absolutely, because there's so much in it, because it's you know over an hour long. The the interview itself, I've narrowed it down to talk very much about the, the video game influences. Um, I also would suggest after you've read the book, come back and listen to that last bit of the podcast because there's lots of questions about that naturally arise at the end of the book as things tend to at the end of stories about what happens next what was going on there what was the whole and we talk about that um but yeah otherwise here's the here's the interview enjoy it's on i feel like sit around like this i know just a sort um, of like fireside ambience yeah I know, I feel like we should have a fire crackling and maybe they could add it in post That would be like, yeah, it's like post-Christmas, like yeah. book chat. Because I always, you know when you listen to people's podcasts, I don't know how many podcasts, if you listen to podcasts, mm. but I, I, was, I always think that they're in a certain location. Mm. So it's like you conjure an image. Yeah. So for anyone listening, anyone listening to this, uh, we are in a mahogany panelled mm. room, as you can probably hear. Yeah, with, uh, a fireside, a fire crackling in the grate. Exactly, a number of wealthy denizens of the upper class in the rooms arrayed around us, going yeah. about their conversations. And we are in uh, expensive gowns, uh, dressing gowns, uh, yeah. sipping. No, I'm in a gown. I'm in a full ballroom gown. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> a dressing gown. Like. In fact, I want to be in a gown now. Now you said well, that. that, that we're gown. destroying the illusion that we're creating for people here. But yeah. like. We're in both. We're in dressing gowns and gowns. Which actually makes me think of a think of a question. But before we jump on to all that, uh, hello, Stuart Turton. Thank hello, you Bertie. very much for coming down uh, to talk to to me and to to Eurogamer. Um, it's reading your book, The Seven Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, sometimes I struggle to get into books straight away, but from the very start, I was I was hooked. Oh, thanks very much. You, I, I'm blushing. No one can see that on the radio, but I am, in fact, blushing. Thank you very much. That's really kind of you. And thanks for having me down. Um, a great place to start um, would be to hear you describe the book in your own words. Am I, it'd be, <laughs> would be my words. When I ever think about it, that's kind of the noise that happens in my head. Yeah. And it's always been the noise that happened in my head from the moment I had the idea and then had to work out how I was going to write it to sort of midway through writing it and being lost in the woods to the end of it and thinking, oh my God, what happens to it now? It's always been just, ah! Um, but it's it's a Agatha Christie murder mystery, like just as tropey as you'd want with the isolated house and all the guests. They've all got secrets and one of them murders Evelyn Hardcastle. Uh, that's not a spoiler, obviously, from the title uh, at the end of the day. And our protagonist has to work out who murdered her. The twist is... When he really doesn't work it out, the day begins again and he's in a Groundhog Day style loop. So he gets another day to go through it, but he's in the body of a different guest in the house. So he's constantly bumping into future hymns and past hymns and they don't all quite want the same thing, which is a <laughs> bit weird. Um, so that was a hell of a thing to plot out and create. Yeah, right. So um, also you mentioned spoilers there. So for anyone um, listening, we are going to purposefully try and avoid spoilers, uh, certainly big spoilers. Um, until the kind of latter half of the podcast um, with the intention of hopingly giving you 
plenty of things to hear uh, and get you excited about the book uh, before <laughs> we ruin it for you. Um, <laughs> and I must apologise up front for my potty mouth. I do tend to get very excitable and then I start swearing and it's just, it's ridiculous. So I do apologise. He's much more eloquent on the page. No. <laughs> yeah, and there's not a single swear in the book. I don't think there's a single swear in the book, actually. I can't remember. I don't, I don't know. I can't, um, I can't remember. Um, so... The book came out um, in February. The hardback edition mm-hmm. came out in February, and the paperback has just come out um, in October. Yeah. Um, how how's the reaction been? How's this year been for you? What's what's the reaction to the book been? Um, it's been nuts. So I started writing this book genuinely thinking it would be for, and this is honest. I think most authors say this, and I don't know if some of them are genuine. I absolutely am. I thought I was writing it for seven people. I thought I was <laughs> writing it for like myself. Which seven people? There was me, my mum, my sister, my wife, and then my dad, who would like read it over a period of about seven years because he is a very <laughs> slow reader, and then like one of my friends might pick it up. But I just. It was an idea I had and I had to write, but I didn't have any belief that anybody would actually pick it up and read it. Um, and I don't know whether that's because I thought I couldn't pull it off and it would just be garbage when it finally happened or whether I thought it would come out far too complicated, um, which as I got into the process, really strangely, were the two things that I became more worried about, that I didn't want it to be complicated yeah. and I did want it to be mass market and I did want more people to read it than I initially thought. So yeah, and then kind of once you've done that, once you come out with it and you're looking at the book and you're like, hang on, this is this is all right. This is hanging together. And then, yeah, you get an agent, which, you know, again, is a big deal. You're like, oh God, I've got an agent. All right, that's kind of a thing. And then you've got this person talking to you about your book in depth, right? Like he's asking questions. He's honestly read your book and he honestly, my agent honestly read my book and then obviously knows things about it that I'd never really thought and he's spotting errors in it and problems and he's talking to me about how you fix it and you're like, oh God, this is actually happening now. Right, okay. Then it goes out and some publishers get interested. And after that, it's just like, I told my wife, but it felt like I was just, nothing happened with the book and then I was shot out of a cannon. That's what the last year feels <laughs> like. It's just gone so quickly. Has it been a big success for you? Yeah, yeah, it has. It's been um, so three weeks on the Sunday Times bestseller list, which is huge. We were in the top five, um, which is massive considering the first top four spots are basically owned at the moment by Eleanor Oliphant and... Um, the Tattoo Auschwitz and uh, Ian Rankin and a few others. So that was massive. We were um, number one on the Saturday Times bestseller list, which wow. is the one that it's a bookshops. I think it's Waterstones only, but sales through Waterstones. So we were number one on that for a few weeks. Um, we sold it in, I think we sold it in about 27 countries or something, which is insane. Like it's going to be read in Russia and China and South Korea and Japan and Lithuania and all these countries, wow. man. It's mental. And we start to see the cover art come through for those and how people different, like they interpret the cover for their markets. That's ridiculous. And then, yeah, so and there's been, um, and again, I'm, I'm blushing because like, it feels like I'm bragging to answer the question, but like we've, um, we got nominated for a few awards, which was amazing. And we're up for yeah, the, Congratulations for Acosta and Bookable. Thank you very much. Yeah, again, which is not, oh God, that's not a list that I ever dreamed I could be on. So to be on that list just is fucking sensational <laughs> so how has how has your life changed since the release of the book do you know what not a great deal um because the way publishing works is the payment like so basically financially is kind of the thing that would also immediately change your life i mean i don't have to do i used to be a freelance journalist i don't have to do that anymore 
So this is now my full-time employment. So that is great. But I was, as I say, I was a full-time journalist. So basically I used to sit in the corner of my bedroom at my <laughs> computer writing words. And now I sit in the corner of my bedroom writing words. So just the topic has changed, but the actual act, I don't really have to get dressed anymore. But like that's not... That was <laughs> Stuart never, is dressed in, I am, in I, a ball gown. In a ball gown and a dressing gown. Yeah, I overcompensate now. Um, but I... I mean, I moved house, which was nice. Um, the money allowed me to move house and buy my own home. So that was great. I've had a little baby girl, um, which, you know, the book didn't particularly procreate, but it's been part of it. So there's those big <laughs> life changes that were probably coming anyway. But I think over the next few years, as the um, as the book begins, like as it is sold in different markets and that reaction as well. And then I've got a second book coming out in March 2020. And that's when I think I'll consider myself an actual proper author. But <laughs> at the moment, you've got a bit of imposter syndrome, you know? Yeah, well, I, I have that constantly, every single day. <laughs> but um, then you do go into bookshops to yourself an author. Like, I've written this book called Eurogame, <laughs> mate. You shouldn't do that. It's wrong. Um, so people uh, listening to this may be wondering why Eurogamer is talking about a book uh, to begin with. Um, and it's because... Uh, Evelyn Hardcastle, more than any other book I think I've read, feels a bit like a video game. Mm. Yeah. Is that something you think when you when you think of the book? I do now. Um, not simply since I got on the Eurogame podcast. Um, <laughs> but honestly, it got pointed out to me immediately after people started reading it that it had this video game feel to it. And I'd not intended... I'd not intended it as a video game. I've never thought about video games when I was writing it. But of course I was thinking about video games because I grew up playing video games. I played as many video games as I read books. So when I was pulling from books for inspiration, I was clearly obviously pulling from video games for inspiration as well. As well as like the shows, like cause there's a lot of quantum leap in there, the body swapping. There's a lot of um, uh, Groundhog Day, obviously with the time loop. But then when you start thinking about the structure of what these, this idea that he's got eight bodies to solve the mystery, well, they are lives. They are very much, he's got eight lives to solve it. There's mini, there's sub-bosses and mini-bosses and a boss that has to be <laughs> overcome. There's all these sorts of like, and it's obviously when, my, when I was constructing the book and I started thinking to myself, right, this needs a bit more drama. This needs a bit more threat. I need to move the pace along. I went to video games to pull those elements in. Ah. I did not realise I was doing it. But now I look to it. Basically what I've written is Maniac Mansion. That's why I know I look at it. I just like I just created a book. I novelized Maniac Mansion effectively, um, which absolutely makes sense because that and those sorts of games, those sorts of like Lucasfilm, then LucasArts puzzle games were the first games I was ever playing. They were kind of my brain was forming around story and structure, and it was using it was pulling from those sources to do that as much as it was pulling from Agatha Christie. Yeah, and um, for for the um, listeners who haven't um, read the book, so the the book begins um, where you. you 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 wake up as the reader. You wake up as this character, or you you sort of snap to consciousness or whatever mm-hmm. in, in this character's uh, skin, and you're in the middle of this uh, forest, and you're in this dramatic situation. You know, there's a gunshot, and you don't know where mm-hmm. you are, and it's all it's breathless. That pace just continues, and it's exactly like a video game. Mm-hmm. I mean, it reminds me of something like Bioshock or something. Yeah. You know, you sort of uh, snap to consciousness in a body. You don't know who you are. Something exciting is going on and you're doing all you can just to sort of scrabble around and yeah. uh, look and I think I, I remember thinking or visualizing when I was reading the book that I could almost see my hands you know there's like that thing <laughs> in video games you know where you always yeah. look down and you see your hands you're like oh hello I'm in a body well there is I mean there's a moment I think it's on the first page where he describes his own hands and I very clearly had that idea I mean it's written in the first person present tense which 
um, is very much I am doing this. And it's very, the, the pace is very much like I'm doing this and then I'm about to do this and it's very, mm. and it continues on, along that sort yeah. of pacey. Exactly. And there's that, I mean, that is as close as you're going to get to a first person sort of novelish thing. Like you're writing the guy's thoughts, you're going along with him because the idea always when writing it was that he was supposed to get the clues at exactly the same time you as the reader were getting them so you can solve it, you can get ahead of me, you can work out who kills Evelyn what's going on in the house and all the mysteries because he never has any more information than you have um, and even most of his thoughts are open to you so you can even think about what he's thinking so it's very first person-y um, but again like it's a thing I drew from I had very sort of like you know freewheeling high-minded ideals about why I was doing it but clearly when I thought about how to do it I went straight to video games yeah yeah very much so it's interesting that the first person thing because <clears throat> it feels like um Later on, particularly, and I don't want to talk about too much about um, what happens later on, but it feels like the player character is a, starts then to get a slight step ahead mm-hmm. um, of the reader, which I think is brilliant because yeah. I think when a solution is just out of grasp, to me, is far more fascinating than when I've grasped the solution. Yeah. Um, so and and it feels like the character is has got a plan and is putting things into mm-hmm. effect and I'm like I don't know what that plan is I don't <laughs> quite know what that plan is what's going on uh, but certainly at the beginning uh, you're just like the character scrabbling to work out what's going on who these people are where where you are and you know because it starts with a bang yeah. literally well, uh, and you go through I mean it's in structure, it's uh, your traditional power fantasy, right? Like you start off powerless, you start off behind the curve, everybody else. I say this, it's interesting. When I go and do literary events, I talk about Kafka, I talk about The Trial. Um, if you've ever read that, that has not So that's all about a guy who's accused of a crime and nobody ever tells him what the crime is. And all the way through the book, he's everybody seems to know about this this. Uh, court that's holding him to account except him everyone seems to know what's going on with him and why he's there and everyone seems to know about his fate apart from him so all the way through the novel he's kind of scrambling after answers trying to build up and build up and trying to build this wealth of information that will save him and he never gets there you couldn't do that in a video game you couldn't do this and this it's narratively unsatisfying now like the trial is basically a work of horror and it's horrific and it's it's a very good book but it's very frustrating but if you think about a traditional at least I do and it's video game structure and novel structure if you're going to do that you have the power fantasy all the way through so you start with no power like your weapons are stripped away from you and you <laughs> gradually build up your arsenal sort of metroid style until you get to the end by which point you're far too powerful for the game you're playing and it's almost a formality that you're gonna finish it or complete it and that's what people expect and again you pull that into this like the character doesn't have any information at the beginning of the book the world is completely unknown to him he has no memory of anything he doesn't know why he's there he doesn't know why this happened to him he doesn't know who killed evelyn and as he goes through, he begins to piece all that together and begins to have more information about his world and then begins to use that. He uses the time loop to his advantage and he works out how to do that. And that's really fucking interesting <laughs> uh, to write because you've got to then, you've got to be the person who's working out how that could be. How can this be used to his advantage? But it's pure power. Like it's pure power fantasy stuff. So by the end of the book, he is. He knows how this day, he knows every angle of this day. He's seen it eight times. He knows every different bit of it. And he begins to use those to sort of get ahead of the people who are after him and do clever things. But yeah, that's very sort of Bioshock at the end with the Arsenal, like just going to confront the final boss. It's got that feel to it. So mentioning your, you know, your, your game playing, um, what are the games that influence you? You know, how much you know of a game player are you? You you mentioned it, but you know how central to 
uh, to your life are games, I suppose. Very. I mean, I play something every single day. Um, I've got a Switch at the moment because I've just had a... Well, my wife did all the work, but we've just had a baby. <laughs> um, I don't want to take credit for that. Um, I was just careless. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's as much as I put into it. But um, we've just had a baby, so that's changed extraordinarily. I used to carve out an hour for myself a night. And I would play them. even while you're writing. Yeah, even yeah. when I write, all oh, that's crucial for me. I got my writing is at its best very early and very late at night, and the middle of the day is hopeless. But I would take the middle of the day to edit, or back when I was a freelance journalist, I would work on the Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I'd spend the rest of the week writing the book. That was my thing. But an hour every night, that was my time. That wasn't typing words at a computer. It wasn't you know being with my wife. It wasn't now looking after my baby. That was my game playing time. And I would play those. I, I love the big um, role-playing game. So you know, something I could really throw myself into, like Pillars of Eternity, uh, the old Infinity War games, the, um, what else? Even the new Assassin's Creed actually had those elements to it. Just a big world, a fallout you could get lost in. I love those sorts of things. Um, a Bioshock, anything like that sort of. And then now I'm carving out 10 minutes here and there <laughs> between sort of getting this book written, tending to the baby, sort of like doing all those other things, like the literary events, the sort of publicity for the book and the writing of the second book. And it's changed remarkably. And that's so now I play almost exclusively on a Switch. Apart from I've just, um, I badly wanted to play uh, Return of the Opera in. So I've just got my laptop out and started playing that. Yeah, so. I, haven't, I haven't started that yet, but but equally really want to play. Uh, what what games would you say have been the biggest biggest influences on you? I don't like asking what people's favourite games are because mm. I think that's a weird question. Um, but what are the games, when you think of the games over your life, which games have influenced you most? Which are those? But you know what? It's In terms of, like, influence suggests to me that there's some sort of, like, continuing... Uh, thing and it's not my tastes have always kind of shifted yeah and maybe the, influence isn't the right question yeah I mean I'm oh, sorry I'm not just, no no but it's a rubbish question why no, did you I ask think it you're right because I, 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 I genuinely I have an issue with this people going what's your what's your favourite game then mm. and I'm like but I, I don't know how to answer it yeah like everything satisfies a different mood right yeah. and satisfies a different point like genuinely I've been playing games since like the Commodore uh, not even the Commodore the Dragon 65 this old <laughs> shitty computer like pre-spectrum computer and I was playing Chucky Egg on that and if you'd asked me two years like what my favourite game would it would have been Chucky Egg of course like but um and that, of course, from because that was the reason why I love video games. So if you're talking about influence, you can go back to Chucky Egg. You can say, oh, it's Chucky Egg, because now I love video games. Treasure Island, which never get past the first aisle, like the first <laughs> level of, because it was shit hard, and I don't think they ever finished it. Like, um, But like the games that I constantly... I mean, when I was a teenager, all I played was first-person shooters. Uh, I used to... Before that, I played point-and-click adventures, because we had a... PC that didn't have a sound card in it so I didn't want any flashy games so I just played point and click adventures <laughs> without the sound so to this day when I play something like Day of the Tentacle and hear the voices and hear the sound on it it freaks me out like, I'm like that's not right I have the voices in my head whereas now it's far more I play a lot of strategy games so I play a lot of like what well, I did pre-baby I played a lot of sort of XCOMs Crusader Kings I played a lot of um, turn-based strategies um, and as I said like role-playing games so it just depends how much of my brain I want to be using, to be honest. Like there's sometimes when I'm knee deep in writing, what it's really, it's genuinely taxing. It's genuinely hard. Like, I don't know if you've had it, but you've got a piece that's structurally very difficult to pull together. And it is like, it takes energy and you feel worn out by the end of it if you mm. pull it off. If I have a day like that, all I want to do is get into a doom and just let my hands do all the work and just like, I don't want my brain doing too much. 
Whereas I've other days where I'm massively frustrated by the writing and I need something super absorbing to kind of pull me away from the problems that I've been working on all day because that distance will help me solve them. And that's when a, yeah, that is when a, a Crusader Kings or a Pillars of Eternity, somebody else's world, like somebody's all-encompassing world that I've got to work through and solve problems within and have to throw myself into wholly. They're brilliant for that. They're my sort of like distance from myself games, especially the ones where you kind of, you finish playing and you're just like, what the fuck am I? Like just you've been playing that you meant to play for like 20 minutes, you play for two hours and you come out and it just takes you a little second to work out what, you, what you're doing and who you are. And yeah. What was important before you had to save the world. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's fascinating. Um, and we, we touched on it a bit already, but it's fascinating this role of games um, and how you then approach a story. And I mm-hmm. think it sounds a bit like, you know, once games are in your life to a degree, you know that they, you know, they've shaped your thoughts, and mm. you know you you play games enough that you can you expect certain experiences from them. And like you said, you weren't consciously putting them mm. necessarily into your game, but they came into your game anyway because they're in you. Yeah, uh, to begin with, into my book, not my game. Yeah, yeah, sorry, <laughs> into your into your book. Um, I don't want anyone to think that I've taken a game, and especially my publisher who's wondering what my second book is, and now believes that I'm writing a game yeah. at the same time. Um, <laughs> because it's interesting when you look at the book. You know, you look at when when the um the days reset you have almost npcs with patrol routes yeah as in like a game of like hitman or yeah, something yeah yeah um you even have to a degree character classes hmm. uh cuz each new body you inhabit has yeah, their own set of uh skills and and, and weaknesses and yeah. strengths um it's it, yeah, it was interesting. I was going to say, did, had you noticed these things? But uh, No, I hadn't noticed a lot of them. I mean, what's interesting is when you break down video games and structure of video games and uh, narrative formation of video games, and you do the same with novels, there's obviously going to be a lot of overlap because what you're fundamentally doing is telling a story and you're trying to apply it to your medium. But what we call character classes, you know, in a book is just generally a character. It's just kind of like a set of interesting quirks that your protagonist has to use or... Um, and we should just explain, can probably without spoilers, that because the character keeps waking up in the body of different guests in the house within the book, um, their personalities are still within them and they can begin to fight back as they, they go through. So that was always a big part of writing it, that I wanted that to be a challenge because I never wanted anything to be simple. Like every new wrinkle in the book is a challenge for the character who so he has to overcome it. And... Um, yeah, that idea that the characters would have quirks that would have these personalities that could fight back. Again, you see it in video games as character classes. You see it as... Um, but it's just a narrative... I don't want to say trope because that makes it sound hackneyed, but it is. It's just a narrative thing that you have to do when you're putting a story together. And I think there's loads of that. I think it'd be fascinating. I'm kind of interested now to go make a game and see how much of the experience of putting a game together and planning it out would mirror writing a book and planning that out and see what kind of connective tissue there is between the two yeah it's a complicated book Hmm. uh, to put it uh, mildly Um, and I imagine so because for people listening so when the days reset there's an element of time travel Mm -hmm. and like Groundhog Day in um, and everything being interconnected and if you change something here how does that affect the rest of um, something which all fiction based around time travel has to try and yep. deal with um how on earth did you deal with that like how, <laughs> how did you keep track of all these moving parts 
Um, so initially, I planned out every two minutes of every character's day in the house on how, a massive how? spreadsheet. Oh, okay, I know. Yeah, yeah, so just had a spreadsheet every two minutes for everybody. So obviously there's blocks of time where you say two hours, the cook is doing this in the kitchens. But just by doing that, I got a feel. And then I, you know, I knew kind of from where they would be in the house and what the activity schedule for the house was. I kind of knew where they would be. And then I started plan- putting my plot sort of weaving my plot through that. So this person's going to be here. Maybe if I put them there, they can overhear this conversation or they can do this action. It took three months of planning (laughs) just to get it all where I wanted it to be. And then I took all of that information, uh, boiled it down into sort of like, you know, two hour chunks or one hour chunk, whatever needed. And I plotted those out on a map of the house and grounds that I'd made up. And that was a big chart on my wall. And is then, it a similar map to the map that's in the... Yeah, it's the very similar, but much worse. Just so <laughs> terrible and so awfully drawn, because I have no artistic ability whatsoever. Whereas the one in the, the book is completely beautiful, but mine was just like an MS Paint kind <laughs> of like thick lines of like X dies here and stuff. So this is something you created physically, like mm-hmm. it actually, okay. Yeah, because I had to be staring at it every day. So it took up one full wall of... Uh, I laughingly call my study is actually the corner of my bedroom, but um, it took up one full wall of that, and then I had a load of post-it notes on the uh, post-it notes on the other wall, which were just little reminders of things to do, things to keep in mind, and kind of the themes that I was trying to thread through the book because they're quite easy to lose track of when what you're just kind plotting. Of things did you have? Because presumably they also um, pertain to the kind of rules of the world, hmm. um, but actually the rules came very late, ah, which is a okay. bit strange um, because my plot. And actually, a lot of that came out of the US edit, which is very strange. So it was bought in the UK first, and then we sold it independently to other countries, and one of those was the US. And it was interesting that the US edit was far more interested in the rules of the house than maybe the UK edit was. Mm. So they were very specific about upfront wanting to know what these rules were. And I think that's a lot where a lot of that is where the kind of video game feel comes into it, I think, by establishing the rules nice and mm. early, that it does give it a game-like feel. Whereas I guess in the UK edit, it felt a bit more loose around the edges had a bit more of a dream quality to it there were definitely rules but they weren't necessarily being explained as early on um why so, do you think that was why do you i think it's just reader taste i think um the way it was explained to me is that this kind of book in the uk readers are given it a lot more latitude whereas us readers would more quickly categorize it as a sci-fi sort of fantasy novel um in the uk it was basically marketed as a, just a crime novel with a you know a twist in the US, it's been it's been put in a slightly different classification. And so, yeah, so a lot of people, it's sci-fi and they expect rules. They expect if you've got a fantastical world, you should at least know how hard the edges of it are and how that works. Like gremlins, right? Like you've got to say the rules <laughs> up front so everybody knows where they stand. And I think that was brilliant. I think that actually was a brilliant call in the end because I, it was, again, a thing that once I put in, I could make it something the character could use against the world. So the character would learn the rules and then learn the advantages and disadvantages and then use it as part of the power fantasy. Um, but yeah, they came. so they came relatively late in the edit, in the okay. last year, certainly. So what were the things you had on the post-it notes? What's an example of the, the things that you wanted to remind yourself of, of with these? Notes? So I needed to remind myself, like the big one that stands out is I've got, you can probably hear it in my accent, but I'm from the northwest of England. So I've got a massive working class chip on my shoulder about the nostalgic period I'm writing about. So it's the the periods are bleakly referenced, but you can call it anywhere in the twenties, thirties, forties really. 
Understood. Right, and it's rich people, yeah. mostly. And mostly. Then, I mean, you have some servants below, and you, you do get into you know the, the yeah. serving. But but yeah, and they are universally almost badly treated. Um, but it's about. I mean, this with the agricultural trope is the sort of middle class to upper class people in house having a nice party, and then one of them's murder, and it's all very dastardly. But generally, <laughs> they're all having a very nice time. I don't believe Christie was saying that this period in history was a very nice time, but it's kind of the way it comes across in hindsight because now we live in council houses and sort of like we don't all have lots of money. And that reading through it is the one part of the novels that still pisses me off um, because it was there was no social mobility. There was like Labour governments were coming in and were being crushed by landowners and a lot of things were happening that, annoy me and like we take for granted in our modern life so somebody like me who came out of a northern working class town back in that period would not have got to write this book or at least it wouldn't have got any traction um i wouldn't have gone to university certainly and so this idea that we especially in the climate that we're in at the moment we're all looking back at these like there's some halcyon days that we should strive in and unsurprisingly the people who want to take us back there are generally quite minted it slightly annoys me. So all the way through the book, I was very keen that I didn't want to sort of like make this a grandiose period. I didn't want to make this party awesome and glamorous and something that we should be aspiring to. I wanted it to feel grubby. I wanted it to feel dirty and unpleasant. And and you're signalling that you want to say something. No, oh, I say uh, that's right, because even so there's, they're in this um, grand house, mm. but it's in disrepair and it's, it's literally dirty. Yeah. Um, and none of the characters are very nice. In fact, there's one character who is a jumped up servant, isn't he? Yeah. But and but he's gotten there by um uh by blackmail and he's of, he's not a very nice He's uh, not. And and again with characters like that, what I wanted to do was sort of like because I've got this unusual structure, the Groundhog Day loop, what it gave and all the different bodies, is it give me a chance to Maniac Mansion style, actually, coming back to it, was you get to... Nobody's ever the same person with everybody in their lives. You'll be different with your parents as maybe you are with your wife or your friends or your children. Like, you'll still see different sides of you. If you could go into the bodies, see through their eyes and see yourself through their eyes, I think we'd all be surprised how different we appear to different people. And I wanted to play with that and explore that. And so every character in this book gets that treatment. So they're seen from every side. So Evelyn herself, who's the lady who dies, who's on the title... You see her on the first day and she's lovely. She really likes the person she's interacting with. But the second day, she fucking hates the person she's interacting (laughs) with. So she's despicable. And if you'd only seen one of those days, that's her character set in stone, apart from maybe a few flashes of kindness elsewhere. But doing it this way gave me that chance to really just put conflicting versions of characters on the page. So even if you like someone day one, you'll probably hate them day two, but you might find them solvable day three. Somebody you hated on day one might have redeeming qualities by day three. Probably not because of who I am and what I was writing. But (laughs) I tried to give everyone shades and that was really, really fun to play with. There's something else which struck me, and I, I, I'm going to ask you about your favourite characters um, to write in a bit, but I'm going to leave that in spoilery territory just mm. in case we, we go there. Um, something else that struck me that was quite video gamey was the occasional, well, maybe often, uh, brutality. Yeah. And which was quite shocking. And, I, yeah. and again, I don't, want to, I don't want to ruin it to people, but, um, you know, there's a threat in this mm-hmm. world as well, a constant threat. And it can be quite brutal. Yeah. And I wondered if that was uh, if something had come from video games there, because, you know, video games have a tendency towards the quite graphically violent. Yeah, I think actually, weirdly, it probably came in opposition to video games. Um, but that came out of opposition to our current culture, which is that violence is something that we all treat as fun. Um, and I don't, I used to, uh, you know, 
be involved in martial arts and like I've been hit in the face a lot and it really hurts. <laughs> like it hurts. And, but you see it in movies and you see it in video games. People are getting punched and shot and they shake it off and they're carrying about their day. And that's something, as I've got older, I think that's begun to bug me a bit more. Like just our general societal attitudes towards sex and violence. It's obvious things to say, but they're all skewed and wrong and weird. Mm. And they're kind of gradually being redressed. But when I want set out to write the book, I wanted to make sure the violence was horrific. And not just because it builds threat and tension, but because it should be terrifying, characters don't just shake off being stabbed. They don't shake off being shot. If you're beaten up and punched in the face, you are dazed. Like, I wanted to somehow reflect that experience and just make it something that didn't feel like it was just something your hero is just going to overcome. To the point where the first character in the book, his overriding personality traits that he's a coward. I think that makes complete sense in the context mm. of what's happening to him and what's been done to him and the level of knowledge that he displays. But so many readers have reacted very badly to that because... Your hero is not supposed to be a coward. Your hero doesn't get to be a coward. Your hero has to be uh, Jack Reacher. He has to be implacable in the face of every foe and has to sort of instinctively know what to do in every situation. None of us are like that. That's really strange to me. <laughs> so I just wanted to kind of slightly tip that on its side. Like there are heroic characters who come into the book later on, but just for a little while, it's kind of nice to wrong foot people. And when you have violence, be actually, oh no, violence is not great. It's not fun. Um, whenever violence raises its head in this book. So again, I hope it's not a spoiler to say, but basically every fight my character gets into this book, he loses. Um, because the, the the quantity of violence that's been visited upon him is so overwhelming that he can't respond to it. And that's the way violence typically is. Like If you're fighting somebody in a ring, there are rules to keep you safe. But mostly, if you're out in the street and you get into a street fight, there's generally going to be more people, more of them than there are of you. And it's going to be a horrible depressing, despairing thing that's going to leave you damaged for weeks or possibly worse for the rest of your life. So I just wanted that. I wanted that sense of of carnage and just slight rebuke to the way we treat violence in our society. Yeah, well, it's, it's very vivid. Um, you know, it's very memorable, some of it. Mm. I could really feel it. Yeah, uh, so could I. I mean, it was horrible to write. I was, I was going to say, what, what what's that like to, you know, to write about killing someone? I should add that um, my dad... Um, Kill someone. Kill someone. <laughs> yeah, we should get that on but, the podcast. But uh, his dad, dad murdered folk. Uh, my dad's um, written for TV. That was his um, uh, his career. And he um, most recently wrote for Midsummer Murders. Nice. And so he had to, and this is a, you know, a bit more sanitised. You know, mm. this is the, the brutality isn't quite the same, but he had to dream up ways for people to die. You yeah. Know, was, and it always struck me as bizarre. But what was it like for you? Because you had to do... There was a couple of things. I mean, because I had to... The actual murder is a very Agatha Christie-style murder. So that was just fun because that's effectively a puzzle. And going back to games, it's a very puzzle game, sort of like, how do you... Because I've got a time-travelling detective, how do you murder somebody so that the time-travelling detective can't just follow them around all day and see you bop them on the back of the head? (laughs) Um, And that was a bastard of a puzzle to solve when I was trying to think through it. So you just sat there. I was sat there for days, I think, probably longer, just murmuring to myself in the corner of a room. And I got to the point where that was so convoluted that I effectively like had a piano on a rope just swinging from him. Like, do you know what I mean? I had this murder that was insane to make it so complicated that it couldn't be solved. And then eventually I realised, well, that's stupid. You need a murder that feels real, that would be committed in this way by a person who wasn't aware of all this extraneous stuff. I had to go back to the drawing board. Um, so that was really fun because that was just a puzzle. And all because Evelyn dies seven times... She can pop up tomorrow alive and well. So I could treat it that way. Some of the other murders, especially to some of the characters who perhaps didn't deserve it. There's one, and again, maybe we'll talk about it in spoiler territory, that comes quite late on the book where a, can- a character is rendered completely helpless. 
And it's not actually the, the murder itself, it's the way it's done. Mm. It's the fact that he sort of has to give himself up to it. And that was horrible. And it was the worst thing I could possibly do to that character because by the time you finish writing these, or you're three quarters in, you know them inside and out, like the part of you. They're either bits of who you hope to be or the bits of yourself that you despise and want to punish or want to push away from yourselves. But for this guy, like he was genuinely the closest I got to a hero and I did this despicable thing to him. I felt a little bit guilty about it. And there was times when I just wanted to slightly rewrite it or give him a bit more heroism in that moment, allow him to have a bit more dignity in the death, but it just didn't it didn't work. It wasn't true to what was happening. So yeah, not pleasant. And because it, you can feel his internal anguish at this point mm-hmm. as well. You can like you you, you have his thoughts. Yes, completely. Uh, so yeah. Yeah, and exactly, because you know you know what he wanted. You know that even in this moment, this final moment, that everyone has a hope for themselves. They have a hope for how they would be seen. They have a life they're leaving behind and a legacy that's going to be, you know, bespoiled or tainted. Or... So just having all that sort of thing. It's a really stupid thing for a book that is just really a pacey Agatha Christie. But actually when I sat down to write it, loads of these moments kept happening because it's such a dark book that I was just mm. like, oh God. And some of the research for some of the characters, when I had to delve into the period... And see what these people were like and what lives they were living was horrific. What kind of thing? What? So again, spoilers, I think. But okay. um, Jonathan Darby, I'll just put his name out there. I mean, yeah. what kind of character he is and some of the things he does. But he was based on three or four real life people and real life cases from the period, from the twenties, and uh, what they were allowed to do and what they got away with and what was covered up by their money and their family name is horrific. And everybody absolutely knew the truth, but no one was in a power to do anything about it because yeah. all these victims were uh, lower class and were just people that he knew he could get away with abusing or they knew they could get away with abusing so stuff like that more than even writing the murders like delving into the attitudes at the time and then trying to reflect them on the page was um before we go into spoiler territory i just wondered i mean given the the complex nature of it how long did it take you to write the book it took me two and a half years okay. uh, to write. It took me six months to edit, but I'd been thinking about it for about 10 or 12 years. Ah. Um, and actually, I'd been thinking about the twist. What I wanted to do, I set out to write another Christie book. That's all I wanted to do, because they were the first books I loved and devoured, and I wanted to write one of them. Um, and I tried writing one. I'm 38 now, to put all this in context. I tried writing it when I was 21, and it was garbage. It was just <laughs> horrifically bad. Rip the hard drive out of your computer and smash it bad. And then burn <laughs> the computer and then salt the ground. It was awful. So I put it aside and was like, what I lacked was, it was a load of Agatha Christie tropes just mashed together onto the page. It didn't do anything you knew. It didn't add anything to the canon. So basically, I wanted to have an idea that would raise it up, that would allow it to me to put it on a bookshelf and not be ashamed that it was being compared to Agatha Christie books. And I thought I'd have that idea in a week. I honestly did. I thought a week, a month, like at the outside a month. And then 12 years later, I got the idea <laughs> for the sort of like the body swapping and the Groundhog Day loop. And I had it. And when the moment those ideas came into it, I thought, Agatha Christie in a Groundhog Day loop, somebody's one. Brilliant. Yeah, like that'll do it. I could write that. That'd be great fun. I was like, I'm, that, I must have read that before. Do you know what I mean? It was that, it yeah. felt so obvious a concept that I immediately went Googling it just to see if it had been done before. And thankfully it hadn't because that would have been devastating. That would have been another 12 years coming up with another idea. But it was just, it was the strangest thing to sit on it for that long and suddenly have that breakthrough that I needed. And then just start writing. How it. did you? How did you sit on it? How actively were you sitting on it, or was it just this 
dormant thing or were you actively thinking about this idea? No, it, it changed my entire life. So I became a journalist because I wanted to be writing while I couldn't write this idea. Ah. Um, so because I knew I wanted to write this novel, I'd always wanted to write this novel. Um, but I knew that I wasn't very good. I didn't know how to write. I didn't know how to structure. I didn't know a thing about pace. You have like you have a bit of talent that you see in school and your teachers maybe point out. But I had no clue how to write a longer form piece. I'd obviously tried. So becoming a journalist was my way of training myself. Like I would be writing every day. I would be editing. I would be edited, which is far more crucial when it comes to writing a mm. book. Is that ability to say that criticism on the chin. Um, you know, especially if you work in newspapers or certain magazines, like really harsh language to follow. But basically your entire day is either being called a cunt or calling someone else a cunt. <laughs> that is what your day will boil down to. So when you get to the lovely world of publishing and an editor's like, do you think we should possibly do this? You're like, yeah, it's fine. Like That is absolutely... <laughs> Whereas if I'd not had that training, I think I would have been... Because most people are when they first start writing. You're quite sensitive about it. You're putting yourself on the page. If somebody says, I don't like that line, you feel like it's a massive personal insult and you're being criticised. So that experience of being edited and learning to self-edit as I went through, learning how to structure, learning about pace, all that stuff I picked up through my journalism career was informed by the fact that I always wanted to write a book. So, yeah. And then in terms of actually writing, as I say, I probably, you know, I probably wanted to do it from eight onwards. I probably didn't think about it through university. Um, but then when I was 21, you know, when I'd had my first job, I had a crack at it. It was garbage. I realised how far I had to go. So I went away. And I would have started writing it at 23, 24, 25. As soon as this idea occurred, I would have started writing it. And it would have been an infinitely poorer book because I still wasn't, that good and I'm not suggesting at the moment that I'm brilliant or particularly good but I'm miles better than what I used to be and it's all that experience it's all of that writing it's all of the different styles and tones and magazines I worked for and articles that I had to come up and with and I think the the, the book benefits because there are some really poignant I think reflections on life thanks um, and typically it'll be you'll describe an event that's going on and then just at, towards the end of like the uh, I don't know the paragraph mm. or the uh, there'll be a line which just reflects. Oh, minute. And it's lovely. And there's some, there are some really there were some moments. I wish I'd written them down, um, but there were some really touching, thought provoking. Like ah, oh, that's that's very astute. Thanks. That's well. A lot of that as well came out of that I'd given my. You're right. Like a lot of it is just I've lived a kind of wired life. Like I've travelled a lot. I've lived in a lot of different places. I've had a lot of experiences, which I'm immensely grateful for. And a lot of that, but was that I'd give myself the palette. Like by having the body swapping, by having the time loop and having the nature of what's going on in the house, having a character constantly shift between bodies and see different types of lives opens the door to that sort of, I don't want to call it pondering or philosophizing because I don't think it goes on for that long. But those elements had to be in there because it felt weird if he didn't address them, if he yeah. didn't think about them. And be like, you know, what is the nature of a life? Like, what are we owed? What do we owe to others? Like, if you could live every single day over and over and over again. Sounds like Planescape Torment. Yes. Well, again, <laughs> and when you talked about influencers, genuinely, that I adored that game. And that was one of the first games that, I know everyone says it, it's one of the first games I read that felt like a book, that felt like it had that content and that depth to it. Um, and again, an interesting, to go back to our earlier question, because of the way it treats violence and it doesn't have any particular problems with it, but the fact that you can usually gain more experience in that game by, you know, talking, asking mm. questions and answering questions and um, using words than you can by beating people over the head is just a very interesting game dynamic. 
So yeah, I mean, there's, there's tons of that stuff in, but it wasn't, that would have been on my post-it notes. It would have been sort of on the wall, like he has to think about this, which means I have to think about it and I have to reflect. So a lot of what's on the page is just me trying to, there's moments where your character is talking and there's moments where you are basically talking and usually the philosophizing is me directly talking um, because it's just me working stuff out like about how I feel about shit. Oh my God, this book sounds boring now. No, it's just really fun. <laughs> Loads of people die and it's dead good fun and it's a murder mystery. It's anything but boring. Um, the, the pace is relentless almost, mm. in fact. It, it, it just, you know, it keeps going. And then, you know, at the beginning you're trying to work out what's going on. And I, I mean, you're always trying to work that out. But then the complexity mm. builds, obviously, over time. You know, you get to grasp the basic rules and then it's like, okay, now I'm trying to figure out the bigger picture. Yeah. And we'll come on to the bigger, bigger picture uh, in a moment. Um, but I wonder in that, in the complexity, and, you know, the, I always wonder about the struggle of a writer that we don't see. As mm. the, uh, and I wonder how hard it was. You were writing it for two and a half years. You, know, you lived with it for a lot longer. Um, I mean, how difficult did it get? Did you ever plot yourself into a corner? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was difficult. Um, I mean, to put all this into context, I had the idea, I think in 2012, and at that point I was living in Dubai. I was a travel journalist. Um, I just met my, who's now my wife, but then my girlfriend. We've been going out for about six months or something like that. And I had this idea. And I was living in a, uh, 30th floor beautiful apartment overlooking <laughs> the marina in Dubai I was sent away on holiday for two weeks every month that was my job that was my life and it was perfect it was everything I'd always wanted apart from the fact that I wanted to write this book and the moment I had the idea for the book I knew I had to give that up that I couldn't do that full time and commit to it and write the book so one of them had to go and it was going to be the life I didn't even know if my then girlfriend would come along with me I didn't know and I knew I had to come back to England because it's an Agatha Christie book if I was going to do the research for it, if I was going to sort of like go to the country houses that I need to go and see, if I was going to just be, you know, rained on and like, and just be in the country of these mysteries, um, that's what I needed to write it. And I needed her to come along with me because I was invested in that relationship as well. So we gambled a fuck ton on this book working and me pulling off. So I was at once, I had the benefit of knowing I could never quit. I could never just, because she agreed to come along with me, we left all that behind and we ended up in like a tiny little flat in central London above like a children's nursery. We lived above a children's nursery for three years. Um, so like every day you just hear the children playing downstairs and screaming and stuff like <laughs> trying to write a book. Um, we had piss all money because I was working three days a week. So I was making just enough money every week to cover the bills um, to have a pint with mates, but that was pretty much it. There was no holidays anymore. Like all this stuff that was the basis of our relationship when we'd met was suddenly cast away. So the book had to work. And I'd also promised my wife that it would take a year and then we would reevaluate. And then after a year, she was like, well, and I was like, well here's some pages. It's <laughs> going to be another year. And then she'd read the page and like, okay, I think we can see where it's going. So we get another year. Then another year, we're still not there. It's going to be a bit longer. And so there's a couple of moments. I mean, there's a couple of really not dark moments. That makes it sound too harrowing. But like there was one point where I just, I had a really, <laughs> so it, for a moment, for a little while, it looked like I had an agent on the hook for it. And that didn't come to pass. So that certainty of knowing that I would have an agent, because getting an agent is an incredibly hard process and anybody who's tried to write a book and gone through that, it's soul destroying. And I thought I'd just had that covered without even having to try and then all of a sudden that was taken away and I was left floundering. So that was really, really hard. 
And that made me doubt myself a great deal. And then the other one was I got, I had my immense plan and I followed it diligently until one day I had a really great idea and I put the idea in and that led to another great idea, another great idea, another great idea. And long story short, I got about seven months later, I had to toss away 40,000 words of writing. Like mm. it just, as you say, I planned, I plotted myself into a corner. Too many things were happening all at once and most of them were stupid. Maybe we'll talk about that in a moment. And yeah, it probably yeah. comes into but um, yeah, that was that was hellish, and those were both moments where I had to just and how do you, stop. Yeah, how do you pull yourself out of it? I mean, you know what? I can yeah, I can imagine. I mean, I don't know if despair is the right word, but I imagine it's pretty. Well, I think it would. It was actually because like I'd bet or gambled so much on the book working, being able to pull off this promise I'd made to my wife uh, and to myself as well with the life that I'd given up to do this. It wasn't like I could just swan back into the world I'd just given up. <laughs> Um, so you know when it's like December you know outside and it's cold and it's grey and you've got no money and you've just tossed seven months work away, worth of work away it was just devastating like I just had to stop for about a month and go and do my freelance and I went I think I went freelance full time basically so I was doing a lot of other articles and doing a lot of other writing and just get a lot more money in for that month just so we could do a couple of nice things and then like okay now we go back to it after Christmas. So I think it was just always stuff like that. You're just kind of constantly evaluating as you go along, being like, where the hell's my head at right mm-hmm. now? Like, what do I need right now? And that gets harder. Like every year that goes on where you don't have a book. Because it's like doing a piece of freelance that no one's going to pay you for for three years at very best. <laughs> like, that's what you are working on. Yeah. Um, but I guess because you bet so much on it, you never came close to quitting? No. No, I couldn't. There was no opportunity for that. I couldn't have stirred my wife in the face and quit. Like, I couldn't have said, like, I'm not doing this anymore because I'd asked her to give up so much to follow me to do this. And I'd invested so much in it myself in terms of, like, going freelance and leaving that life behind and doing my leaving my dream job behind to do this that I just wouldn't have been able to... You know, how do you wake up in the morning and stay yourself in the mirror knowing that you... Mm. you gave all that up and you even had nothing to show for it so it was just some combination I guess of stubbornness and pride by the end of it but <laughs> on those bad days you were like well this is what I'm doing today like just stop feeling sorry for yourself and just get up and carry on writing did, did you know did you know when you finished it did you know that's it it's done did you have that moment or yeah I did actually because I had my plan so because the plan was so thorough I knew, and what I would do is every day I'd just wake up and write whatever bit of the book I felt like, so it wasn't chronological by ah. any means. So if I had a day where I felt like writing a big fight scene, I'd just wake up and write the big fight scene. If I wanted to write a sort of philosophical bit, I would find a philosophical bit on my planet and then I would write that bit. So what that ended up being was that I effectively, I don't really like writing exposition. I don't think most authors do. So that's like my vegetables. So I ate all my meat and all my deliciousness. And then there's a lot of vegetables <laughs> left for the final year of the book, which is just me writing exposition for like 12 months solid. But um, once I'd done that, I, I ticked it all off on the plan as I went along. And there was a second tick for, um, you know, when I think I've edited it nicely and when I'm happy with the writing in there. Because I wanted for myself, I always want to make sure there was one beautiful thing on every page. So even ah. if it's a page of exposition, I always want there to be one nice line, one nice that, reflection. And and I think that, what I was saying earlier, I think that comes across. Like no. every so often, you know, there'll be the line, which is, you know, yeah. the, there's the, the lines about what's ta- what's happening. And then there's that other line, which is the one beautiful line. I yeah. Page. I mean, I wonder, like, because in video games, you've got the, the, the graphics are always the thing, aren't they? And they, 
I don't, I've never quite worked out what graphics are for, apart from to present the experience in the most attractive way because we're all drawn to beauty. But in terms of the actual experience you're having, they generally don't affect it too much. Mm. You, as Return of the Oberdin shows, like they've got, it's beautifully illustrated, but not traditional graphic style. So like writing is this in a book for me, it's the pleasure part of the writing. Like you can you can do a book any which way you want. It can just be all dialogue, it can be all like narrative, it can be all plot, it can it doesn't have to have any beautiful writing. But like that's the one form where you get to do that for me, where you get to write a really beautiful line and stick it on a page and that's where you can enjoy it. So I was always keen that I wanted to put that in there, that I wanted to it wasn't necessary by any measure, but it was necessary for me as the creator of the book to have that in there. That's what gave me pleasure because at the end of the day like two and a half years on this thing with the six months of editing I needed to try and entertain myself every single day I needed to make sure that I was enjoying what I was doing and that's what I enjoyed doing so yeah I feel like I've just like pissed off a lot of like graphic artists who work on video games as well (laughs) I massively enjoy your work it's just the yeah but it's interesting that the the graphics and the look in video games are so important you know it's so Mm. important to getting people there and to shaping your memory i think of a game uh, yeah. like take a game like rhyme for instance yeah if you played uh but that has a very distinct look in my head yeah and it's and it's very important to the you know the deeper message in the game i think because the deeper message yeah, is, so, is so deep and uh but yet the the art suggests something far lighter hmm. i think it works quite well yeah um, that is true actually i've never thought about like that before because i've always a lot of the experiences i like and this is a pure bias isn't it is because i did like turn-based strategy games like the graphics were always kind of like secondary they were just there to mm. represent bits of the information which, yeah. like a sieve like sieve graphics have got gradually better as they've gone on but they still functionally doing exactly the same as the original sieve sieve 2 like they're just there to present the bits of information you need and make it more accessible to you. Um, so in those things, yeah, I guess you're right. You're absolutely right about what graphics do. With me, though, I was always like, well, the prettier graphics are just there to sort of like, they're there because that's what modern games demand, but they yeah. don't impact the experience in any meaningful way apart from making the information easier to get at. Which is why something like, I guess, Football Manager, you can just have a spreadsheet <laughs> on screen and it'll work perfectly. Yeah, well. graphics get in the way in that yeah, case. Yeah. Um, Let's get into spoiler territory. Spoilers! Spoilers! So um, just in case that wasn't clear to anyone listening, spoilers! Um, We are now going to go in and talk about some of the big twists um, in the story and maybe some things that were cut and all the sort of things that they'll be brilliant for you to to discover firsthand. So please, if you're interested in reading the book, and you ought to be, uh, go and do that and pause the podcast now. For a few weeks, maybe months, <laughs> and then come back to it because you'll definitely want to uh, hear. Can I just throw in my own warning while we're doing spoilers as well? Like this is one of those books which I cannot demand you read it in any particular way. I can only ask that I hope you read it and I hope you enjoy it. But if you've got, I would clear a period if you can of like three or four days and binge read it. Um, because there's so much information, it's best if you kind of hold it all in your head as you go through. And I've heard from a lot of readers that they've tried to spread it over like a few months and read it, you know, just 10 minutes here and maybe a Friday and a Monday, and you lose bits of it as you go along. So hopefully you'll have a nicer experience if you can sort of clear a weekend for it. There but, you go, clear this clear this weekend. I don't know what this weekend will be. I don't know when this yep. is going out, but uh, this weekend works well. Um, so let's start with, I suppose, the formation of the idea. We talked a bit about this already, but... When you form the idea, so, you know, when you, you, you'd you formed on the idea of time um, hopping, body hopping, mm-hmm. 
how many of the, the central conceits were there? I still feel awkward saying the, the spoilers, you know. Did you did you know who Anna was? Did you know who Aidan was? Did you know their relationship to each other? No. Okay. No. So I knew that I wanted the novel. What I initially... So when I came up with the idea, I was on a flight. Um, I can't remember, going to Qatar or something. And it was 2am. And I know I can remember because I wrote it down at the time uh, what the idea was. And it was an Agatha Christie mystery stuck in a Groundhog Day loop where the protagonist would leap through as many bodies as it took to solve the mystery, right? So that actually in that case, there was no limit on how many bodies he would go through. And I think initially my idea was that he would just keep leaping through everyone in the house. Okay. But, so there wasn't that threat. There was there was no at that point tension. Because I still think I was thinking of Agatha Christie cosy style mysteries, that it was just a book you would sit down and read and you wouldn't be particularly, it wouldn't make you tense. It wouldn't have that impact at all. It was just a murder mystery with a twist on it. That's all I had when I first started out. Everything else came out of when I started to plot it and plan it together and realising what was lacking. Anna came because I needed... um, I wanted him to have an equivalent in the house. So every page I tried to write with Aidan, every revelation, I wanted to make his life more difficult rather than make (laughs) it easier. That was always the idea. So that when he finds his ally in the house, she makes his life more difficult rather than easier. I also needed, structurally, a character like him who could remember things from day to day because every Groundhog Day loop, every loop, the day starts entirely again. Everyone starts from the beginning. They don't remember what happened yesterday apart from Aiden and his competitors in the house. So I needed somebody else he could have those conversations with who would remember stuff and could act upon things that they'd learned the previous day. So weirdly, she was narratively just important to start off with. And then the relationship began to form and the sort of like slightly competitiveness, the sort of like trying to help each other. Where do we stand? Can we trust each other? When did this idea of it being a bit like a, you know, um, a game show? And I did think for a while, actually, I thought, oh, what if this is a game show? Mm. Because, you know, the competitors thing, I was thinking, ah, it's like some running man style uh, yeah. or you know battle royale yeah I think the competitors thing came in because I needed tension yeah so I needed it couldn't just be him trying to solve the mystery without any threat so the first thing I think that came in was the um, I tell you what though a lot of this came from because one of the very first ideas I had you know Daniel Daniel Coleridge the character who just first presents himself as his first friend yeah and it's like I am one of your hosts I am your final host and he turns out he's not his host at all he's a competitor he's just been pretending blah 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 I just wanted to do that I wanted that character to do that um, not even twist at that point just sort of like be that insidious and be that much of a twat that yeah. he would like <laughs> so I wanted that guy and because I had that, then that opened the door to sort of having more rivals in the house and that became, well, and then as we talked about earlier, when the US wanted rules, it was like, we'll codify it. How many of them are there? Why is there only that amount in the house? Why are we doing this? And a lot of those questions got answered because people asked them as we were going through. People And some I left behind, they weren't interesting to answer, but some were interesting. Some were, had really great solutions and lots of really interesting subplots that I could sort of thread through mm-hmm. without messing around with the timeline. So that idea of rivals initially came because I wanted Daniel, but then I wanted tension. I needed to have Aiden under threat. Yeah. And that's where the footman came from as well. Ah, see, the footman for a long time, I thought the footman and the plague doctor were, were, were very similar. Mm. And I actually thought the footman would end up being more of a special character mm. more of a but a, i mean he's a he is a boss in a way but right. it's, uh, but more of a special kind of boss. i thought he would have some you know unique a bit i thought he would be part of this whole groundhog day loop he would yeah. be someone like the plague doctor who was um you know 
part of the system or something. Yeah. But actually, he's just this brutal yeah. kind of gangster. Yeah, exactly. He's just a bastard. Like, he's just a professional bastard yeah. indulging the art of bastardry. Um, but I wanted that because you have so many special characters that by the point... He was, he was just my big red herring of the novel, right? He was just there to train everybody at eye. So everyone's looking at him as he's going around. Stuff. He's the most obvious bad guy of all the bad guys in the book. And some are more invidious, some are more devious. Um, and like everyone has bad characteristics, but he was just out and out bad. And he's just there to draw your eye. He's just a big, flashy, sparkly thing for you to look hmm. at. And he gets all the brutal violence and he is this horrible, tense threat all the way through the book. But I didn't want to... He is, he, and he is, he's, he's so horrible because... Every time they come up against him, and sometimes you think they've got the drop on him, and it never works. No, it, he always wins. And it's that thing about the violence we talked about. Like every time my character tries to solve a problem with violence, he loses. He cannot yeah. beat the footman. Um, and that was always the intention. To the point in the end of the book, he doesn't. He never beats the footman. Anna does. Anna ends up killing him. Yeah. Um, and that had to happen because I never wanted violence to be rewarded. And also because, and we are massively spoiled territory here, but because it is a prison. The idea was always that it's about violence. It's violence in the prison system. It's kind of like, this is how you get by on a day-to-day basis. Like, there's always one big bastard in the book, who is one big bastard in a prison who is the guy. Mm. And if you go up against him, you're going to lose because he will heap a quantity of violence upon you that you cannot respond to. Mm. But I didn't want to reward it. And I didn't want to... It's a really strange thing. I didn't want my character to win through violence. And I didn't want the, big, the bad guy to use violence to or even get remotely close to his goals so even though daniel employs the footman dan that's not what daniel's doing daniel's not using violence that's over there that's one part of a larger plot so he is as intelligent as aiden is and that's the battle i wanted to be going on i wanted like two lots like almost two chess players playing against each other not a chess player versus somebody like a rugby player do you know what i mean like so it had to be a meeting of minds at the end of the book rather than a meeting of just and then you turn out that it's not a daniel at all it's Evelyn the real Evelyn and she's been playing an even deeper game with everybody else so it's just intelligence is always rewarded and violence is always belittled was kind of the idea and I bet that would have probably been on a post-it note as well and what about this idea that um, Anna is this kind of Hitler-like monster who has been committed to this prison Uh, what about that idea and the whole just scared the shit out of me to do it so a lot of this book scared the shit out of me. I mean, from the founding, the idea about whether I could pull it off, but having this character that I've asked you to invest in turn up at the end and be basically Hitler meets Osama bin Laden, but maybe a thousand times worse than both. Um, if you could put anyone who's done such horrific things on a scale, but like you can't. But this idea that she is the worst thing that could happen to a planet, like she's just terrible. And it was because he... Again, it's hero's journey stuff. Like, I needed Aiden to overcome a huge obstacle. I needed a compelling reason for him to have gone in the house, to have subjected himself to all the punishment that he's gone through. This horrible series of events that's heaped upon him and just what would have kept him there. How long had he been there? About 30-odd years, I think, in the end. Um, But then just to have the reveal, and I remember writing it down, and it was one of those things I found it in writing it. Like, I'd been noodling around with the idea of what had brought him there, but I didn't quite have it. And I noodled around with the idea that Anna was his sister for a little while. I noodled around with the idea that she, he was. But what that led to was the male hero saves female trope. And mm. I never wanted that. And I thought it'd be nice to flip it on its head that he actually come into the house to 
to torment her, to persecute her, to do vile, terrible things. Which is quite her. grim. And again, it's quite like Planescape Torment. Yeah. In that you actually you find out you're a kind of baddie. Yeah, yeah. All the way through it. And you are trying to... Well, it's like quite all the way through that game, isn't it? It's like, you know, deciding who you want to be. And sort of Aiden gets to do that at the end of this. Um but he had to he had to have that moment at the end where all the foundations were shook and he still had to be like no this is now what I believe this is the kind of man yeah. I am so you need something because all the way through the book it's about him creating himself like he learns who he was and that wasn't a very nice person he learns what he's done and he's ashamed of it and he decides to start again he decides to be and act to be the kind of man he always wanted to be as we'd all do because I don't again I don't think that any of us if we lost our memory necessarily would look in the mirror the next day and be told all of our sins and be happy with them we've all made <laughs> mistakes and we bury them and we're happy to bury them and we can forget about some of the awful things we've done because we're generally quite happy on a day-to-day basis with who we are but if you just dug all that up and put it in front of you i think we'd all like feel like shit <laughs> and aiden's sins are worse than most so yeah there was always just that sense that anna and the true nature of who she is had to meet the true nature of who he is like they both had to be kind of equally terrible um, but it was also just the right female character who was that level of awful was interesting to me and scary to me. And I think it, it made for a nice big earth shaking into the book. Certainly. It, it, so much so that it, it for me, it almost it eclipsed the, the whole whodunit, really. Mm. Um, you know, I, you, know uh, you find out obviously who Evelyn Hardcastle really is. Um, but I was like, well, hold on, what's this whole prison idea? Yeah. Where did the prison idea, how late in the game did the prison idea come along? Oh, so late. So terrifyingly late. Because I needed a reason why it had. I told you, like, my... Because there, I have lots of questions about the prison thing. So much so that it feels like it was a late, maybe a late idea. It was, was a late idea, but I went back and redrafted the entire novel to make it work. Okay. So I didn't just stick it in at the end to explain. Once I worked out that's actually what was going on, I, I introduced it as a theme, which again is part of why the reason the violence is so brutal. It's the reason why the footman uses a dagger, uses a shank effectively ah. through it. It's the reason why, because before that he was killing him various ways and it was always had a, a quantity of malice to it. Um, and it was far more theatrical the way he was murdering people. But when I had the prison idea, I was like, no, 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 like this guy is just a killer. He would kill in a way that he's comfortable with and he would enjoy. Um, all the stuff about him looking in their eyes came from sort of the idea that he was just this psychopath who was effectively, he doesn't know he's in prison, obviously, he's just part of the world. But like, I wanted to create a prison vibe to it all. Um, and there's other little things I can't remember, but I went back and redrafted it to make sure that this idea was consistent all the way through and worked. But initially, I just had the quantum leap, the body hopping, um, Groundhog Day loop thing, and then I had to find a way to justify that. Like, why is that happening? Because I knew I couldn't leave it vague. It had to be explained. And the solution to that would have to be equally valid to the solution of who killed Evelyn. Because if either of those pillars failed, and they do for some people, I absolutely acknowledge that some people don't like the ending at all, but there's two endings because there's three books happening here. Like there's effectively, there's, yeah. Um, Agatha Christie book with a murder mystery, and you can read it as that if you want. There's the sci-fi bit, which is the the prison, and then there's the body hopping, uh, personality clashes, quantum. Like you could have made a book out of any of them, and I just smashed through together. <laughs> so I had to answer. I had to have an ending for all three of them. And uh, yeah, some people are disappointed by one of the endings, or two of the endings, or three of the endings in some cases. Some people love them all, but. 
it is because there's three books there and there's three books being ended and those all had to work and they all had to work together which was the tricky part (laughs) (laughs) easy easy peasy well yeah like to be honest you know what like if this had been my second book i'd probably never have started it like i had the, the the advantage of ignorance for a first book i've just been like oh sure i can pull that off i want to be able to i have written a three thousand word feature in the past <laughs> how much higher like an 130,000 word book be this is my mindset right now you see yeah yeah exactly um so i i'm trying to wrap my head around the prisons okay mm-hmm. so this prison that aiden's in there are three people in there yeah so there's aiden anna and daniel mm-hmm the plague doctor is one of the guards, effectively, yeah. and there are other people. But all these other people in the prison, um, you know, all the ca- like all the characters in the uh, in the story, I suppose. How do they reset every day? Uh, they don't. How He's... does this simulation work? Is this is it a real simulation? Like, are these real things? Like, is it Westworld where they're like androids? How do they... this is one of those things? Like. I would love to say, I'll tell you off air. I'm not going to tell you off okay, air. Okay. There's a couple of reasons for that. One is because we've got a production company interested in it at the moment who are, they've got their writers writing up. And these are the sort of questions they'd be interested in answering if they were ah, to take it to season two. I like juicy secrets. Yeah. So um, we've talked about it and that would be an interesting thing that they would want to explore. So me just saying it now would probably, you know, they'd turn up my contract immediately and we'd be done. <laughs> and uh, my wife would be very upset about that. So... Uh, back to the flat in London. Exactly, yeah, we're going back to the nursery. To, <laughs> because a few curless words with Bertie and you've destroyed our life. So um, they're interested in that and we've gone through that and worked out the the parameters of what that is and how that looks. Also, as well, just honestly, because I would never have written that book. That's sci-fi uh, and that is the sci-fi book. And all the way through this, I was very conscious of what kind of book I was writing. It was an Agatha Christie murder mystery. That was, for me, the focus. It's great that other people have honed in other bits that they really loved and really had more questions about. But I purposely left those vague because Mm. every time I got into them, it became more about that. Yeah, which I was going to say, you know, it it is a bit vague, but... I, I guess in explaining it, it yeah it, like you say it becomes yeah and there's it gets to a point as well where you've got you're answering questions that not all of your on and not all of your audience were asking and it so becomes a bit lord of the ringsy like you know you've got like your 17 <laughs> endings at the end of it it could easily have been that if i tried to go into every question but for maximum impact at the ending it kind of had to end where it did with so the questions you, unresolved are you satisfied um with how it ended with they because Okay, it, it like it's a bit of a love story, you know. They mm. they the the two, you know, they they overcome their their stuff, um, and then they they run <laughs> the, off the stuff, the stuff. brutal murder yeah. of his sister <laughs> and uh, his unrelenting thirty year torment um, and destruction, and, then, and they run off into the um uh, into the wilderness together. Yeah, I mean, a I'm like, hold on, how do they just run off into the you know the wilderness? How, where do these prisons exist? Um, you know, are they... Well, there's a little clue. I mean, you've got the Plague Doctor, right, who on the final pages is like, when you get out of here, you can, all you can do is run. Like, yeah. you don't have a life waiting for you. You don't have anything waiting for you, which suggests that there is something outside of where they are. That outside is a big nebulous word. But um, that idea that there is no happy ending waiting for them is kind of the ending that, like, what he is, everything he's done to get to that point, it's just an incredibly bleak book, but, like, 
she he could have left that world at any point and had a perfectly nice life outside of it and he chose to take her with him and no one's ever going to believe she's reformed no one's ever going to believe that she is is she reformed um she is i think she's is so long as she doesn't get her memories back i think and it is a question again about how much of us is our memories like if you lived this entire life and you got your memories back would they overwhelm the personality that you had mm. uh, or would they just be a set would they always feel strange to you would they always feel like and I've read accounts of amnesiacs who just like Jason Bourne yes exactly yeah that was my primary research material um, speaking of violence uh, but yeah just I've read these accounts and it, it does seem to go both ways and it seems to be the amount of time you've lived with the new personality or the new life without those memories that for some people when they start coming back they are just always strange ah. memories they're just kind of in a corner of your head and they don't really impact you too much like you vaguely remember maybe not connected yeah exactly yeah. because they're not they no longer form that personality. And I think it's about the strength of the new personality. Um, and again, it's just a really interesting idea that these guys have been formulating these... Per- have these guys been formulating these personalities for 30 years? Or have they been formulating this personality for one day? Mm. And if it's the latter, probably if they went out and got their memories back, they would be overwhelmed by the hate and the horrors. Slip back into a bit exactly, of genocide. Exactly. Yeah. They would be as bad as they ever were, which is why the ending is very much like, we can't get our memories back, we just have to go with what we've got and hope for the best. But if you can imagine it, like, if Osama Bin Laden disappeared for 30 years and then turned up again running a deli or something, <laughs> and he was like, no, actually, guys, I'm better than I make great sandwiches, yeah. it's not going to work. Called Obama's. Obama, yeah, exactly. Like, it would just be, even if he was happy and smiley, no one was ever going to believe it, and yeah. he'd be dead within a week. So we don't have that capacity for forgiveness, and I don't think we should have that capacity for forgiveness. I'm not suggesting that there's anything inherently wrong with that attitude. But in within the terms of the story and within this narrative, she's going to go out into a world that remembers what she did, mm. and they're not going to believe that she's any better, in the same way that the Plague Doctor, in the same way that Silverteer, in the same way that the superiors of this world would never believe she was only ever supposed to go into this prison and she was supposed to stay there forever and ever and ever under eternal torment. Um, and the only person in the world who believes she's reformed is Aiden. What happens to the prison that they left? Because that crime is solved? Yeah, it's solved. Uh, I imagine it would just carry on going with Daniel and they would just stuff another two people in there. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. So if you imagine like the... Because I thought it was a bit like <laughs> um, capture. You mm. know those... Um, when you fill in like a password, a login or something, oh, yeah. and then you have to do the capture. Um, that was um, people crowdsourcing, like filling in the pictures and things oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. And they were trying to, and I was thinking, oh, they're like, they're crowdsourcing um, via rehabilitation um, a load of crimes. I think for that, and again, it's a very sci-fi concept of how, because there's two things, you, you've got enough information to create this world and all the characters and all the conversations. Um, and at no point do we actually ever say this is actually what happened. But then on the other hand, the superiors are surprised by the answer to the question. So they don't have that much information. So you can take from that what you want. But there is a divide in information there. Something or somebody's got more information than the mm. people manning and running it. That was an always an interesting thing for me. Um, so I suspect that the value of what's going on, the value of that prison, who it holds and what it was constructed to do would remain, even though it's been solved. Um, but I don't think the people within the prison, especially the play doctors, of course, he's never seen it done. He's never seen the, the solution mm. presented. He's never had to let anyone out. 
So he has no more information about what happens post that than anybody else. Ah. Um, so Do you know what happens? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I've got an idea. Again, because I wanted... It's really interesting, right? If you imagine my thought process when I was creating the book, I drew a massive box, which was all of the world, including In Blackheath. MS Paint. Yeah, in MS Paint. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I filled it with just green lines. And then there's a much smaller box inside that, and that is this story. Ah. Um, and that's and that's where I focused my attention. And so whenever I felt myself veering too much into the big box, I pulled myself back into my ah, small okay. box. But I had to understand how all of it worked, even very late in the game when I came up with the prison, just so I could be thematically consistent through the writing of the book. Um, I have no ideas about a sequel. I don't particularly want to write one. I have no ideas about a prequel. I don't particularly want to write one. Uh, if it did go onto the screen, they may be interested in doing more of that sort of stuff, and I would have consultation with that. But... The, yeah, they weren't this story, they weren't this book, but I had to understand it anyway, because mm. otherwise it just... Because all I ever did was I wanted it to feel like the story had been running before you ever got there and would carry on once you left. And it's surprised to me how many people are pissed off by that idea. They're just like, no, 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 you should tell us everything and the story should end the moment the last page is over. Yeah, which again leads into that whole video game thing of they want to be the special right they want yeah, to be the yeah. special and they're like I know it's, it ends because I was uh, you know I was part of I it I saved the world yeah 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 precisely that's really interesting isn't it and like um, I love the stories I love in all medium that they feel like they're just carried on yeah they, they just like you with them for a little bit of their life and with a little bit of their experience and the game carried on after yeah. them or this carried on after you um, and I guess because it, it's such a bleak ending or it's it depends how you take it. Some people have found it incredibly positive and uplifting, which surprises me. But yeah, the- I mean, it's satisfying since they they solve something. You know, they they, yeah. they do that and um, uh, and yeah, and he runs away with her. And I suppose endings like that as well make me think more about it because I think, well, where are they going? Yeah, in the world, like what? But it's not a happy ending necessarily. You know, no. they they just. But there's definitely a possibility for that. I, as much as I said, like as bleak as I personally conceive it um i haven't written the next page and to be honest like tomorrow if i started to write the next page i probably would give them a happy ending because they lived happily ever after it would there just you be go, that yeah yeah <laughs> just write that into the final page yourself in crayon they lived happily ever ending but i probably would write that because actually seeing how they if i wrote a second another which i've said i won't do but if i was going to write another page and it was bleak it's not very dramatically fulfilling, right? They just come out of the house and it's a bit awful and it carries on being awful. But writing a story where they somehow found happiness would be a far more compelling thing to have to write. Mm. So even though I personally think it's bleak, actually another page after it would probably be far happier because that would be an interesting story. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll never explain it. So mm. sod off, Bertie. Leave me alone. <laughs> um, I'll, we'll tell you over, I'll tell you over a pint. It's a pint per question. That's how we work. Oh, okay. Yeah, fine. Um... So, I guess I don't want to keep for too long. But um, how did how did the or did they how how did the the, the twist or the the you know the, the main uh, parts of the story evolve over time? We talked a bit about you know how mm. things were added in, but did anything? Did you have to what that stuff that you left behind that several months you left behind? What what were the, the things you had to leave behind, or what things changed? Uh, Do you know what? Surprisingly, a lot of what went in. The timeline was there from the start and that held all the way through the editing process into the point of like the, the, the work I threw away was the stuff that took me away from my original timeline. What was the away. stuff you threw away? I mean, I the 40,000 words were, it's awful. So you know how you've got um, Silverteer who turns up at the end, he's another sort of plague doctor. Yeah. Um, and he's just got counterpart. There was initially like, I'd wrote in like a council of plague doctors 
uh, and their entire scenes were just them sat around the table having conversations. And it was almost, looking back at it, it was almost, you know, the um, the the gods from the old Harryhausen films, yeah. where they kind of stand around the table and say, we will do this with the humans. It felt a bit like that, and it was naff. It was really terrible. And I don't know why I thought it was a good idea, but I do remember writing it thinking, you're a genius, certain. Oh, yes. <laughs> Nobel, Pulitzer, come to... I don't know why, but... Like, but again, you're in your own little world for so long that you have really stratospherically terrible ideas and think they're good. And that was one of them. But it led absolutely nowhere. It was narratively inert. Every time I went to them, the plot stopped. I didn't know, I can't even remember now why they were there. The only good thing that came out of it was Silvertail. She was saved from that because it was the first time I'd ever conceived of the Plague Doctor having a life outside of this place mm. and maybe having friends who would think, actually, he's a bit deep in this. Like, he's causing himself problems and maybe would step in to try and help him and that solved the problem of Daniel as well because Daniel had too much information yeah all the way through the book he had too much information and initially it's because I'd conceived of him doing the loop the way that um, Aiden did it so he had his seven days so he was just ahead in that loop and blah blah but when you try and sort of like mash that information together and turn it into a rule it doesn't work at all yeah it was too hard so he needed a source of information that was outside and Silvertay solved that problem for me so that 40,000 words was a lot of that. There was another character called Inspector Dan Grady, or Dan O'Grady, Dan Grady. And he was very Poirot-esque. He was very um. sort of... And because I was Agatha christie I wanted to write an Agatha Christie, it was initially incredibly important to me that I had the big sit-down at the end. I don't know how much Agatha Christie you've read, but... Oh, sort of, yeah, not that much, but I'm familiar with that idea. Okay. Of the... Yeah, so the big sit-down and the big reveal, and he points out what everyone's dead and everyone's secrets, and that's initially how I thought the novel would end, and it's initially how I wanted the novel to end, and I planned to that way. So what the structure was, if you imagine, it would kind of like be a massive uphill for 90, like 90% of the book, which would just be all the questions being asked and all the mysteries, and then it would be the final 10% was a plateau of just answer after answer <laughs> after answer after answer, and it was boring, man. It was so tedious, and it was just didn't work, and I had this inspector who... You, when you leapt into his body, he was in the village outside of the house. Yeah. Uh, and he had a wife and he had two kids and there was sunlight coming through the windows and it was supposed to be the exact antithesis of the entire book you just read. And he was living this perfectly lovely life. And the idea initially was that it was presented as a sort of like, you will always have like, you could either go back to the house where horrible things and uncertain things away or you get this one day, this one perfect, lovely day. Um where you can sort of like relax and enjoy yourself. And yeah, the loop will start over again tomorrow, but you will always have this day yeah. to come and to look forward to. And it was supposed to be a sort of temptation thing. And again, it just didn't work. Hmm. Like it was, again, when the narrative hit there, all the tension went out of it. All the tension went out of the book because that decision was much better off placed where it was, which is on the final two pages when he has to work out whether to give up Anna or not and whether he is tempted to do it. It's just much better there than it would have been in this weird village and just to introduce characters we'd never met before. And having him then turn up at the house and be very Poirot-esque and deduce everything, it made every other character look pointless. Yeah. It made them all look like they were just idiots waiting for him to arrive. So I took him out and the moment I did it, everything had to work miles better. Everything, the tension remained, but all the characters had their part to play and they all meshed together and they all had their roles was much stronger. And a lot of what he did, I took out and I spread evenly through all the characters. So they always had, at least one of them, would, they would always have at least one big deduction that sort of pushed you further on in the story. And that changed the structure 
from being this uphill plateau to a sort of onion. So every time like we peel away a layer, mm. you get something answered, but there'll be two more questions behind it. You peel away, two more questions, peel away until you got to the core. And that just worked much better for the book. Talking of characters, um, which were your favourite ones? Because I'm, I'm trying to think of... I really liked... Is it Ravencroft? Ravencourt, the banker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ravencourt. Because just because of his sort of physical size I think mm-hmm. and I loved it like his mind but I loved how he was really struggle you yeah. know just walking across oh, who were your favourite characters to yeah, write yeah it's Ravencourt it's interesting loads of people have told me that and he was by miles my favourite to write yeah. um, because actually he was technically the most difficult not just in terms of like sort of portraying his immense size because there's a moment in when we're in his shoes as well it's that moment that Aiden starts to sort of grab the day by the exactly. of the neck as well there's like a yeah. turning point no that was exactly it because at that point he begins he knows he has all the information he needs to start making plans he knows he's in the Groundhog Day loop he knows there's body swapping he has to start working out how he can use those things to his advantage and he has to the entire book has to slow down for that to happen so to come up with this incredible, <laughs> so you literally, I literally slowed yeah, it down. Yeah. But like, if you look at all the book every one of the characters the physical states are used to pace the novel so they all, their builds are not just, they're not arbitrary, they're just pacing. So when I needed to move, have some action, move the plot, move the pace along very quickly, I stuck him in the body of a really reckless, stupid character who would just run out, dash after things and yeah. do daft things. Because you couldn't imagine, so Jonathan, uh, not Jonathan, uh, Davis, Donald Davis is the character who goes on the long walk up the road and falls asleep and then comes back towards the end of the book. But that's an incredibly stupid thing to do, but somebody had to try it, like, you had to. Yeah. I had to explain narratively that Blackheath had walls and that you couldn't leave as hard as you tried. So what I had to do was have a character just go on a big long walk. Ravencourt couldn't do that. <laughs> like I didn't want to waste his intellect and his abilities, and also physically he couldn't do that. Dance couldn't do it. It was too old. Darby had other parts to play. Rashton came along too late and was too. So you needed characters to fulfil specific roles. So by just by virtue of what he was going to do, it was just a bit like, oh, he's just an idiot. Like he's just stupid, <laughs> and that informed the character. It gave me the character. Um, and the same with Ravencourt. He had so much to do, so much of the narrative depended on his intellect, but then his size, this morbidly obese character. It was fantastic. Which was disgusting. Like, so the, the the opening where he gets up for breakfast um, and then he's given this like trough of eggs and yeah, bacon. Yeah. It's just fil- it's horrible. It's horrible. And it's what's interesting about it is loads of people hate that. They, they th- claim a fat-shamed people like that's ah. a lot. I got loads of negative reviews that that character is me just fat shaming and that's not at all what I'm going for and I think if you read through the entire book you'll see that but a lot of it is just your it's the first time Ravencourt because the personalities are fighting back Ravencourt has a lot of shame about his own mm. his own build his own size and then you've got um, you've got Aiden as well who is just like at that point he wants to be moving quickly he's begun to understand things he wants a body that he can use not this thing that is like laden upon him that is slowing him down which is making him vulnerable when he suddenly understands under threat and his reaction to it is massively over the top but his reaction to it is massively over the top because A, Aiden's just a human being and he's just been into slight light bodies where he was dashing around all of a sudden he's not, he's in this morbidly obese flesh but two, he's just not a very nice man. Like he's very, he's not very nice about dance later on, who's the old guy, because he's just like anything that isn't exactly to his specification, he gets really pissed off about. But at least he learns the value of Ravencourt going through. So that was tremendous fun to write as well, just to have him suddenly realise that this mind could take him anywhere it wanted, that he could solve these problems. That he could, and he never really gets to do that again in the book. 
but that was great. And his relationship with Cunning and his valet is really good for yeah. him as well. Yeah, which is hard to read as well at points because, you know, when he's getting him undressed and things, and, yeah, you, yeah. and you feel um, Ravencourt's shame. Yeah, yeah, uh, completely. And, uh, yeah, Cunningham obviously uh, comes through and, um, and helps him anyway. Um, how would a game of the book work? Uh, sexy Brutale probably yeah yeah. I mean I don't know like I tell you what when that game was announced I shit myself I think we just I think it was due to come out I can't remember what the times were but I remember reading about that and just being like fuck man that sounds like that sounds like my book and they even had like a Plague Doctor mask on the Ah. cover I absolutely shat myself for about a week Um, so I don't know I think it would have bits of that it'd have bits of Maniac Mansion it would have... It's interesting, isn't it? Because actually a lot of what happens in the book is has been surprising to readers. But to people who play video games, it's all fairly... It's not rote, but they're not surprised by being able to move mm. through characters and choose new hosts. And, you know, like, a lot of zombie games do it now. Like, you die and you go and you yeah. move the next body along. Um, so actually a lot of the mechanics of it would be fairly standard in video games. Yeah. You'd be plucking from there, you're plucking from there, you put it in, again, the bosses, the levels... Um, I think what you'd have to do for a video game is make it... What I'm really, really loving about uh, Return of the Oberdin at the moment, I hope that's how you pronounce it, is that it makes you feel like a detective. It makes you actually do detective work. It's not just throwing a lot of icons mm. at you to chase after and then, you know, you find three of something and you have solved the mystery. Um, it's constantly scribble things into a book. It's constantly like, you, okay, you've got to work this out. You've got to deduce things. I think it'd have to do something like that. I think it'd have to have... You would have to be the character and you would have to do you'd have to be clever i want it to make you feel clever all the way through and unlike most video games where the power fantasy is everything and kind of the challenge kind of lays down beneath the power fantasy i would like this to a video game with this i would love it to feel almost insurmountable that Mm. you'd have to chip away at it constantly and constantly constantly to get through it yeah and then people could show you their their actual hard copy uh, journals afterwards where they've made notes. Yeah. This is all the stuff that I had to write down. There was some guy on Twitter. He was like, he was live tweeting me as he read it. And he was live tweeting me his theories as he went along because he wanted How to How close was he? Not very. <laughs> I mean, he got like some of the little things he got, but he kind of, it's interesting. He got the, not through the avenues that I would have expected, not through the clues that I'd laid down. He'd kind of made big guesses based on genre knowledge and mm. sort of like, so that was fascinating to see him. But he got, I mean, you got thirty percent of it, I guess. Yeah, but that's thirty percent of like a thousand puzzles or something. So like, it would just be interesting to have something like that, and then maybe have like a sort of alien isolation type constant threat, yeah, sort of roaming through the game, so that it could just come out at any time and just end that character, and then you're in the next one and you carry on. Oh, that'd be <laughs> awesome. That would be good. Um, so you know, you've had this book in your head, or you had this book in your head uh, for it's still in my head, believe me. Yeah, yeah. for 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 an incredibly. Um, don't you know? Large part of your mm. life. Um, what's it been like to sort of let it go and 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 move on to the next thing? And to what degree does Evelyn Hardcastle and the things in it give us a clue about you know what you're writing next, or have you completely changed? No, I've had to completely change. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got a two book deal with Bloomsbury, my publisher. So, and they would like another book with a body at the centre. But God bless them, that's all that they've asked for. So it's another mystery. But it's exactly the opposite, almost in every circumstance. Still fun, still complex, still a lot going on, a lot of subplots and a lot of character work. But I've left the time travel, I've left the sci-fi fantasy elements. It's far more historical. It's 
and it's far more epic, I will say. Um, but again, just to keep the fun nature. Like I said, early doors. Like I just want I want people to want to read this till two o'clock in the morning. That was always my aim with it. Just I don't want people to be able to put it down. So I want the next book to do exactly that. Like if you get one of these books or one of my books, which is still weird to say. It's just a book you know is going to be fun, that you'll have a good time with, that you'll miss your stop on the bus or the tube or the train or, you know, that you're going to have a tired night in work, then a tired day in work the next day because you've stayed up too late reading it. <laughs> yeah, thanks a lot, Stuart. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, if you can do that, if you can pull that off, that's a form of magic. I love that, mate. But yeah, the rest of it is going to be exactly the opposite. And again, I'm trying to keep myself interested, like for the writing, because I've got two years to write it. I'm about to turn it in. Every day I had to find a reason to work. Ah, you see, so you're turning it in now. What's that, a first draft? Or Yeah, it'll be the first draft. I'll turn it in first of March, that one goes in. So we're going away to Australia soon. And I'm just going to write solidly in Australia and get it all finished. I was going to say, okay. get it all tidied up. And then, yeah, first of March, it goes into the editor. And then we've got a year and it should be out March 2020. So, ah, lovely. Yeah, so we've got a lot of editing and a lot of fun stuff ahead. But um, yeah, mildly terrifying to sort of like let other people read it. I can't wait to read it. And I think that's a lovely place uh, for us to end. Um, Thank you very, very much for for coming down and chatting. That was absolutely fascinating. Oh, Uh, And I feel like I want to read it again now. I'm I'm gesturing at the book. You can't see it. I'm looking at it like I've never seen it before. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, look at that. That's quite pretty. Uh, Oh, no. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate the talk. It was really good fun. Fantastic. Bertie, thank you very much for providing an interview. And the piece, again, if you haven't read it, it's on the site now. We'll put it in the show notes so you can go away and read that, um, which is quite nice. You're welcome. Thank you very much for, for letting me take up a podcast. I hope it was fun to listen to. Oh, anytime. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at Eurogamer. I'm at Crazy Ren. You're at Clert. I am. Why Clert? Okay, so this goes back a long way when I was playing uh, some freeware role-playing game. 20 years ago or something like that I downloaded it and I needed to name my fantasy team which is a very classic setup and I had to name a cleric and I was I think I was writing cleric or something and I misspelt it and it said clert and ah, I went that'll do that's really good and it just became I then played an online game where I was playing as a cleric and I thought ah oh, clert yeah that fits and also in these online games loads of names are taken Mm. And clerk is never taken. <laughs> so it just became, it's easy to say, it's just easy for people to see and associate. And so it just became, yeah. and it's not one of those cool names that's embarrassing when you get a bit older. It's, it was always embarrassing and mm. a bit rubbish. So it's never like Shadow Killer 55 or something. It's, uh, it's yeah, it's got a nice, like, just clerk. It's very kind of short and sharp. And yeah, the amount of people that probably do misspell cleric. Probably they'll, if they do spell it, call it by accident, they're just going to keep going back to base. But you're like, no, I like that. Actually, that works. <laughs> so that's for me. So you're at Clert. And uh, the author, Stuart Torton, is uh, at Stu underscore Torton. Yep. Um, he is currently inactive because he's in Australia. He's in Australia writing his book. What's yeah. going on? He's having probably, uh, hopefully a lovely time. And yeah, I'm sure he's going to produce many more great novels. So yeah, one to watch for sure. Um, but yeah, Bertie, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you very soon.